There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When Diplomacy Fails presents A Master's Dissertation by Zach Twomley From September 2014 to July 2015, I worked busily on my Master's in History in University College Dublin, Ireland. From roughly the beginning of this year till the end of July, my time was mostly taken up by the research, writing and editing that was involved in creating my dissertation. For the longest time, I didn't know what aspect of history I would cover for it. I knew it would be something to do with the July crisis, but other than that, I was stumped. Eventually, I decided to give up on looking at what I had hoped my dissertation would examine, the question of why Britain went to war in the first place. That was a question, as I was told and only knew too well, that had filled libraries, and the secondary literature alone would have definitely prevented me from giving the topic adequate coverage in my limited space. So my supervisor and I settled on something a little more specific. We focused the microscope instead on the more social and ideological aspects of the era. Under his advice, I decided in early March to direct my studies towards the Code of Honour. Initially, I wasn't really convinced. How could something as loosely defined as the Code of Honour actually provide me with a worthwhile dissertation topic? The deeply I delved, though, and the more I read into the subject that actually very few historians have examined in detail before, the more I began to accept that the topic would be worthwhile. It wouldn't be much fun to explain the topic of my dissertation at parties, sure, but for all intents and purposes, the Code of Honour could be looked at from so many different angles that I wouldn't be stuck looking at its social aspects, which was my nightmare. I really didn't want to be stuck in a position where I had to study something that bored me. My initial concerns about the Code of Honour as a topic were that it would be too much theorising, too much dry debate and not enough reliable information to actually keep me interested. What I never imagined was just how important my study was. 
Not because I provided all the answers and went where no historian had ever gone before, but because during the course of this work I really began to understand and appreciate the context of the era in question, and I began to accept the individuals within that era for all their flaws, worries, and hopes. The Code of Honor was, as I discovered with a mixture of relief and pleasant surprise, as real a concern for Britain when it went to war as its own security. For some statesmen, honour and security were inseparable entities. So what did it mean? What was the Code of Honour and how could it actually be explained in modern terms? My dissertation will do much of this explaining in the later episodes, but what I found was that the Code of Honour was something that was in many ways difficult to accurately define, mainly because it meant so many things to so many different people. For a rough definition though, I would argue that it revolved around ideas of personal honour from the past, in other words the chivalric code of honour that gentlemen once abided by, with the jewel being used to settle any disagreements that they may have had. The gentleman, once he followed the code of honour, was concerned with maintaining and defending his image, especially to his peers. The gentleman worried that, if his personal honour were damaged, then shame would be incurred. This shame would result in a loss of credit among his peers, and his reputation would suffer severely. His friends in the elitist circles wouldn't want to be seen with him or be around him, and he would lose much of his influence and respect. To prevent this, he would challenge any would-be insulters to a duel which would erase any sense of shame, win or lose, because he had risen to the defence of his honour. That, in a nutshell, was how the Code of Honour worked for gentlemen and statesmen in the past, and though the duel had long since fallen out of fashion by 1914, the Code of Honour remained an important aspect of how individuals dealt with one another. For my dissertation, though, I wanted to see what this Code of Honour looked like when it had been adopted by actual states. Once I'd done that, I wanted to investigate if it had any bearing on Britain's decision to enter the First World War. How do you measure something like that? Well, you start with the fact that the Code of Honour, where states were concerned, was actually very similar to that of the gentleman. It revolved around prestige, acting morally, and preserving the reputation of one state. The state, in other words, took the place of the gentleman. Acting honourably was a valued aspect of British relations. To act honourably incurred praise and respect from other nations. It signified the strength and power of your state in the eyes of your rivals and allies. To act dishonourably, on the other hand, would demonstrate to the world that you had low moral qualities. It would signify that your strength and ability to influence others had waned. It could result in shame. Your prestige would drop and then, when your reputation had dipped to such an extent, your enemies and even your allies would pounce to take advantage. Your empire would disintegrate as your own subjects across the world would rebel and ally themselves with stronger powers, better equipped to protect them and represent them, and their interests. In the end, you would be defeated and humiliated, with your once glorious resplendence solely a mere memory. To prevent such an outcome, you had to challenge whichever state had insulted your state, as the gentleman had once done, to a duel, or, in more stately terms, war. Such outcomes and results were drastic certainly, but they encapsulated the very real concerns of the British government in midsummer 1914. The British Empire had been forged by great feats of arms and great ingenuity by British agents. 
how easily it would topple should it betray its own moral principles, if it suffered a loss of reputation and if its prestige were perceived to have dropped in the eyes of the world, were matters for debate long after even the First World War had taken place. Honour, as I hope to illustrate in the course of this mini-series on my dissertation, was not an imaginary trait in international relations. It was certainly difficult to define, but it was also very easy to see how it permeated early 20th century statecraft, from the way that diplomacy was conducted to the way that stately decisions were made. I gave much of my time to the study of honour, its influence, impact and related issues, and this dissertation should both demonstrate how important honour really was, as well as show you, should you feel less than interested in the topic, that it was far more fascinating and multi-layered than we may suspect. Studying and establishing the groundwork for this dissertation was a laborious process, to say the least. It required a multi-step method of approaching how I would actually create something that had to be 15,000 words or roughly 34 pages in length, not to mention it had to read coherently and fit together like a small novel. First, I did my reading into the era, the newspapers, secondary sources and other primary sources. Anything significant from them was written into the two, now very worn, copybooks that I had designated for this task. Second, I drew from these copybooks to construct a plan for each chapter of the dissertation, of which I had originally planned to create five, eventually cutting it down to four. With this plan in place, the third part involved typing up the dissertation in its initial form one chapter at a time. This took surprisingly little time, since much of the groundwork, which had taken months, had thankfully set me in good stead. The fourth part of the process involved essentially editing the living daylights out of the whole thing, and in both June and early July I had regular meetings with my supervisor in which we discussed each chapter, the worrying word count that I had long since surpassed, and the issue of whether or not I was actually making sense. Fifth, I took all the contingent chapters that I would slaved over, and stuck them together in one word document. This was perhaps the most triumphant part. A few hours of editing and final modifications later, I then printed the thing out to read many more times before, finally, I was able to convert it to a PDF file and email it to the printer's office. There was something immensely satisfying about collecting it from that printer's office on Friday the 31st of July. Carrying the four copies to UCD, one for me, one for my supervisor, one for the external examiner and one to be archived in the School of History, it was hard to believe that the whole process had come to an end. I had, at the best of times, contemplated what would have happened if I had never got it finished, if I had given up or if I had run out of time. I found it so hard to imagine the prospect of finishing it and having the hard copy in my hot little hands. That feeling confirmed for me the rough plan I had conceived in the past, where I thought that it would be nice if I could somehow share the dissertation with my listeners and show them what all these months of hard work has produced, not to mention explain where I've been all this time. Now I put it out to you, my listeners, so that the work I did in semester two of my Masters in History can be forever preserved in this public sphere. Although at times I despise the paper it was virtually printed on, I have come to appreciate that all my hard work has paid off, and though I won't know the grade I received for it until early October or so, whatever does happen to it in the end, I am proud of what I achieved here, not least because I thought it would be so dull and pointless as a topic, 
and it has become one of the most interesting ideas I've ever studied. I hope, now having the finished product in your ears, that you'll be able to derive some enjoyment out of it too. It is worth spending just a few more minutes explaining how exactly I'm going to present this series, as well as warning you of any additional podcast devices that I will have installed to make the transfer from physical to audio dissertation viable. Hopefully, these changes and slight additions won't take away from the original product, and I have tried to leave as much alone as possible for the best and most organic results. An obvious disclaimer is referencing, as perhaps the most important part of making a dissertation is demonstrating where and how you got your information and did your research, for me footnoting is one of the most satisfying and important parts of a good academic work. Unfortunately, though, if I was to read out every footnote, the very essence of this work would be immensely disrupted, and I have no doubt that most of you would find it very annoying. Should you want to see where I got my sources and how I referenced, I would suggest emailing me at wdfpodcast.hotmail.com and asking for a hard copy. I would love to share, or keeping an eye on the Facebook page in case I eventually set up a way of giving you a direct download link for it. Another issue related to footnoting is the fact that podcast footnotes will be making a comeback. Before you throw your hands up in the air in dismay, hear me out. I have no doubt that a great number of you know the era in question well, but for those that don't, the appearance of a few informative footnotes should bring you up to speed. Surely it's better that we all understand what's going on. I spent a long time getting to grips with the era, so it's completely understandable that not everyone sees or understands the key issues of the era like I do. Podcast footnotes should solve this problem, but I will try to keep them to a minimum for the sake of the narrative. Finally, as making the dissertation run uninterrupted goes, I don't want anything but its contents from here onwards to be heard. That means in each episode you won't be getting an introduction like this or a recap of the previous episode's events. Hopefully this won't be too jarring or confusing, because I really want this to flow in audio like it flowed on paper, and I think giving a recap before each chapter would really break up the narrative, and effectively limit the impact of my dissertation. With that housekeeping out of the way, I believe we can get started. What follows is the first in six parts of an audio special. I really hope you like what's about to come. At the very least, it gives you a window into my own life for those that are interested, and hopefully it whets your appetites for things to come. Because let's just say that after this, there are a lot of things to come. I'll talk to you again in episode 6, but for the foreseeable future, let's just let this dissertation speak for itself. Thanks so much for listening and helping to make this happen, and if you would like to support, please be fit and visit the blog, wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, as well as the Facebook page. Not to mention just spreading the word in general about what we do here. Without further ado then, it's time to begin. I hope you enjoy it. Honour at Stake The Significance of Honour Within Britain's Entry into the First World War By Zachary Twomley, BA University College Dublin College of Arts and Celtic Studies. This dissertation is submitted in part fulfilment of the Masters of Arts in History, July 2015. Introduction One may take a horse to water, but twenty cannot make him drink, 
and similarly, you may march men to the battlefield, but if their hearts be not in the business, their value is considerably depreciated. Editorial Western Times Newspaper, 1st of August, 1914 How does an empire mobilise its population on an emotional level? Are these emotional devices simply a veneer used to dress up the true meaning and purpose of war, or are they passionately believed in, revered and defended by statesmen and citizen alike? Do they have actual power? These were questions answered by the British Empire in late summer 1914. In the space of a few days, British public opinion went from being detached and suspicious of continental developments to being emotionally invested in that continent's affairs. This transformation had much to do with the ability of British statesmen and the media to mobilise the public behind the government's chosen course of action, that action being intervention and war against the central powers alongside the Entente. These statesmen were greatly aided in their cause by the Code of Honour, an apparently simple concept that in fact would play a towering role. Honour was sufficiently captivating to enable the British government to commit to a war on the continent which, weeks before, seemed unthinkable. Such assertions require evidence, just as honour itself requires evaluation within the context of Britain's intervention in the First World War. Therefore, the importance of honour, its profile, acceptance, meaning and effects in summer 1914, are the subjects of this dissertation. As one renowned historian has said, Quote, in order to understand the men of 1914, we must understand the values of 1914, and it is against these values that their actions can be measured. End quote. Podcast footnote. These were the words of James Joll, perhaps one of the most renowned and qualified historians to examine the origins of the First World War. End podcast footnote. Only by understanding the values of the 1914 world can historians then adequately grasp the question of why. With a view towards achieving this, it is worth examining the rhetoric of Britain's Prime Minister at the beginning of the war, Herbert H. Asquith, who claimed on the 6th of August 1914 that Britain had gone to war to fulfil its obligation to France. Quote, An obligation which if it had been entered into between private persons in the ordinary concerns of life, would have been regarded as an obligation not only of law, but of honour, which no self-respecting man could possibly have repudiated. In this way, Asquith inferred that to repudiate honour was to abandon one's self-respect, and Asquith was far from the only statesman who thought so highly of honour. In September 1914, David Lloyd George, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, delivered a speech that heavily emphasised the esteem he held for honour. Quote, I am fully alive to the fact that whenever a nation has engaged in war, she has always invoked the sacred name of honour. Many a crime has been committed in its name, there are some crimes being committed now, but all the same national honour is a reality, and any nation that disregards it is doomed. End quote. Lloyd George's speech was met with a feverish applause, and was so well received that the Times noted that it apparently compelled some of those in attendance, quote, amidst great enthusiasm, end quote, to volunteer for military service immediately following the speech, quote, by leaving for the special recruiting station prepared in the precincts of the hall, where they enrolled themselves, end quote. 
Honor was a powerful device. Its very mention suggested a whole range of connotations. Prestige, morality, justice, and reputation. As well as, on the other end of the spectrum, shame, humiliation, challenge, and insult. It was thus immensely useful for capturing the public's imagination, especially when the desire was to persuade this same public of the need for the war that their government was now tasked with waging. Coming to the defence of smaller nations that had been unjustly attacked was something an honourable country did. Aiding one's friends in their time of need was honourable behaviour. To stand up against the disturbers of the peace, that was the right, honourable thing to do. Where would Britain's reputation, its good name, its honour be if it failed to act at such a crucial time? Conversely, those men that argued against intervention also invoked honour. War, they believed, was a dishonourable act since it would further empower the autocracy of Russia and redirect much-needed resources away from the commitments towards social improvement that the government had made. It would portray as wholly dishonest the promises and commitments made by the government to Parliament before 1914 regarding the non-binding nature of Britain's Entente Agreements. Podcast footnote. The Entente Cordiale between Britain and France had been conceived in 1904 with a view towards solving the numerous colonial disputes between the two empires, but by 1914 it had been secretly transformed by a number of British and French statesmen into a de facto military alliance, in spite of the fact that the majority of public and political opinion in Britain was against war in support of France. End podcast footnote. These questions and debates were, at their root, emotional. They were far more effective in captivating the public than more mundane or even controversial issues like the alliance system or military strategy. It is the task of this dissertation to prove that concepts and issues like honour, morality and reputation were central to Britain's presentation of itself and its perception of the world in 1914. This dissertation will seek to accomplish such tasks by achieving its research objectives, These objectives include to identify what honour meant to the politicians and press of the era, to critically evaluate the importance of honour to both the interventionists and non-interventionists, politicians and press, to investigate the prevalence of honour's related issues such as prestige, morality and reputation, to highlight in the form of a case study an example where honour was effectively invoked in the period, in this case the invasion of Belgium will be analysed, and finally, to determine that honour was critical for justifying intervention and mobilising public opinion behind the British government's decisions. The resources used for this dissertation include the correspondence of the major actors of the time, the public speeches and debates that these same actors conducted, and the media's profile and how it weighed in on the concept of honour. Both interventionist and non-interventionist contributors will be assessed so that a balanced picture of how honour was perceived can be acquired. Liberal, conservative and labour newspapers will be examined, and a certain level of attention will be paid to the regional media as well, with an aim towards constructing a more accurate depiction of that media's stance across the country as far as is possible. Honour was many things at once. It was emotive, suggestive, vague and also fundamental to the British sense of imperial prestige and moral righteousness. Included within it was the idea of prestige and security. Since the loss of the former could endanger the latter, it was critical that Britain's honour remained intact and untarnished. 
on others had an important position within the framework of empire, yet, as a concept, it has been mostly overlooked in the context of the outbreak of the First World War. Whether as an unspoken assumption, in James Jowell's words, or as a background issue, Honour was far from distant in the minds of those that made the critical decisions and shaped British policy in 1914. On the contrary, without it, Britain's entire experience of entering the war would have been vastly different, as the emotional, moral elements of their crusade against the Central Powers would have been absent, and thus the force behind their campaign for the hearts and minds of their own citizens would have been far more difficult. As the war progressed and it became moulded by Allied propaganda, Honourable issues and moral principles will become yet more central to not just Britain's, but the entire Allied, position. This dissertation will be divided into four distinct chapters. Chapter 1 will define and place honour in the context of British society and politics in 1914. Chapter 2 will critically evaluate the importance and significance of honour within the interventionist camp. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Chapter 3 will have similar objectives, but its focus will be on those opposed to war, the anti-interventionists. Chapter 4 will examine the case of Belgium and the rhetoric associated with honour that directly resulted from it. Finally, the major findings of this dissertation will be summarised in a conclusion. This dissertation mini-series has been divided into six parts for easier listening. You have reached the end of one part, but not the end of the entire mini-series, so please check your downloads for the remaining parts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. 
The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.